What's Rodney got to say today? Keto, bro. Hmm. Ketogenesis. Wasn't what I was expecting. Keto. That's not? No. Mm, no. I'm, I'm currently experimenting with keto. You were just out here, so you experienced some of my diet changes, cutting out sugar and carbs for uh, uh, like a six-week period, and then they'll come back. I was witness to them, yeah. Trying to get my uh, metabolic flexibility up, you know what I'm saying? Hmm. There's only two forms of energy for the human body, sugar, fat. Everything you eat breaks down into one of those things. The philosophy and the science behind keto is your brain and your body can run off, run more efficiently off of fat than it can off of sugar. And it's a cleaner fuel. And so, you can get about 75% of your energy from fat. You still need to eat. And, and even with that, like almost everything you eat has carbs. So, like I ate a lot of red peppers and green peppers and salads. Like they have carbs however the the thing about them is that they also have a ton of fiber so that fiber affects how the carbs are digested yeah that's what i'm doing right now hmm. for some people know i don't drink coffee anymore so like a lot of people do coffee with butter in it i'm not like my my forms of healthy fats are avocado oil extra virgin olive oil high quality and um ghee i will do ghee safflower oil grapeseed oil canola oil none of those won't touch them okay well that sounds fun <laughs> Sounds like another day in the life of Rodney. Yep. Out here. <laughs> <laughs> life in it up. <laughs> Welcome to More in Common, where we believe that we have more in common and that we're all nurtured by the same things and that we're dependent upon each other. This is our podcast. It's our social experiment, if you will, where we look to provide a comfortable and safe space to have open, honest, and insightful conversations that matter. Uh, we have created a map to help you talk to anyone about anything at almost any time. The goal is to supplement this map by providing you with the tools you need to improve your conversation skills. So you may become a catalyst for connection and be a conversation leader. Indeed, indeed. And uh, check us out on our website, moreincommonpod.com. It's a place to find all things more in common, our podcast, our blog, our contact info if you want to reach out to us, our merch. Uh, become a patron at our Patreon site. All of it's there, moreincommonpod.com. And if you like this episode or any of the episodes that you have heard, please share them with somebody else so they, they may like them. And uh, if, you're feeling, if you're feeling froggy, get out under those uh, comments and leave us comments. That helps us get uh, rated and does good things for us in the, uh, the iTunes world. So we appreciate you. Funny thing about sharing is we all like to listen to people we know and people who, who we love and, and like. So if you make the recommendation, someone's bound to, bound to They're listen. They're going to listen because you're important. That's basically what we're I mean, saying. I, I mean, I believe it. Keith, welcome back. We had a Jamil just released yeah. two weeks ago. And Inspirational fella. He is. We've actually had a couple conversations with him since. Yeah. And uh, what's your, what, are your, what are your takeaways? What are your thoughts? He's reached a place that like an everyday person like ourselves, where we don't necessarily interact with, with people who think at that level. Um, he's just reached, reached a place of strength and conviction with himself. And it's inspirational. One of the things that I took away from that I think about off is how he's very open about the length of the journey it took him to get 
get to that place, mm-hmm. right? We, I think you mentioned it in that conversation. We probably mentioned it in many others. This, this idea that, you know, eight minute abs, right? Five, yeah, seven minute, abs. Five, five minute diet, <laughs> right? Like the, 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 do this for 30 days and you'll lose a thousand pounds. Um, those quick fixes that we're all shooting for, the reality is they take time and they take mm-hmm. a daily effort and they take intention and purpose. And Jamil demonstrates it uh, functionally and aspirationally. And for Mammy, he's just a great person to, to know. And uh, it, it helps me going through a similar journey mm-hmm. um, to, to work through it. How about you? Well, he does. And to, to your first point, you know, he's such a high level thinker that when you're talking to him, it raises, I found that it's raised my level of thinking, but yeah. it's not in like a competitive way. It's not like, oh, I got to best him. It's just like the energy he brings just like lifts my spirits and my thinking. So, it was pretty cool. Two things for me. Number one, I asked him in the conversation we had about uh, how he eats because mm. he mentioned in the podcast about not eat, not, <clears throat> not feeling that the food pyramid that we're given is accurate. Mm-hmm. And he, he mainly said his, his goal is to eat more greens and healthy vegetables and fruits and carbs and meats. He eats them, but he leans on eating more greens and vegetables. And I think that's a good piece of advice for anybody, including myself. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is how Jamil ask questions. Like typically mm. when I asked a question, he responds with a question. And I've seen periods in my life, especially being in sales, I've seen people who use that in a very malicious, dickish way. Manipulative. Manipulative. Yeah. They're just trying to control the conversation. Like they don't want to answer questions. Yeah. Completely juxtaposed 180 degrees from that is Jamil, where he's asking a question to make sure he understands the intent of what you're asking mm-hmm. so that he can be thoughtful about his reply. And it's it's refreshing. And yeah. I want to I want to learn how to do that more in my own personal life. That's it's just such like a caring, thoughtful way that he does it. And I don't, you can ask my wife, like I don't like it when people ask me questions. It's this whole weird thing. <laughs> you, you can ask me. <laughs> do you, do you, you? No, you don't like it when people ask you questions. <laughs> I, I don't like it. <laughs> but Jamil asked me a question and I'm yeah. like, huh. Huh. I want to answer that question. Yeah. yeah like, yeah. well, now, and then you got to think. Yeah. Because it's like, well, yeah. what did I mean with what I just said? Yeah, it's good. So, yeah, it's, no, it's super good. Um, no, that's a, it's, it, he's, he's, he's good people. And um, it's, it, it was great to have him on. Now, the question is, who's on this week? Brittany Hicksenbaugh. Brittany's a personal trainer, group exercise instructor, kindergarten and first grade teacher. Uh, She's managed through PTSD and depression, and she now tries to raise awareness to mental health and to promote the impact of health and fitness on mental healing. In the episode, we talk about, obviously, health and fitness, uh, the purpose of fitness in her life, Uh, Growing up in Palos Verdes, L.A., so she's out here in L.A. where I am um, being sheltered but not being raised sheltered. So, that's an interesting uh, conversation we have. Keith, you want to – what else we talk about? Yeah, and then, I mean, we talk a lot about what led her to to have to deal with PTSD and depression. Um, I don't want to spoil the story uh, that that she so eloquently tells. Um, It's a – it's a – it's a – it'll tear at your heartstrings a little bit. Uh, So, you know, just just be prepared maybe have a box of tissues on this one. Um, but it is an amazing story of perseverance and an absolutely amazing story of, of resilience. So I really, really will let Brittany do all the justice in the world and won't oversell it now. Um, enjoy the show. 
people use fitness and exercise and sweating and exerting themselves uh, for a greater purpose than six-pack abs or to lose weight. Guess what? Mental health is health. One of the things that she gave me that just gives me the sense of relief is, Brittany, anxiety will not kill you. Those words right there, Brittany, you are not going to die from a panic attack. Welcome to or welcome back to More in Common if you've been with us before. Today, uh, we're with Brittany. Hi, Brittany. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Would love to get to know a little bit more about Brittany and where Brittany comes from, but let's let's dive to the to the point of um, health and fitness's impact on mental health and healing. Um, What is that to you? Um, So basically, health and fitness with mental health. uh, I've used health and fitness um, basically as a way to cope. Um, or at least that's my take is, uh, the people that I see that come to gyms, um, whether I'm teaching or I'm just at the gym, I notice, uh, and this is not to be mean, but you know, 90% of the population that comes to a gym isn't ripped. They don't have six pack abs. They're not competing in fitness competitions. They're not athletes. They're not ex athletes. There's a very small percentage, um, that are there aesthetically to achieve that six pack or, uh, agility or professional athletes, maybe 2%. But the rest of the population is there for something so much greater. And, um, what I found was it's an escape. It's a way to cope. Um, it's a timeout. It's, um, it could be any, any one of those, uh, self love, uh, just, uh, I teach 45, 60 minute classes, just a way for them to start their day. Um, and so once I started doing that for myself and then teaching, you know, teaching classes and seeing I'm not the only one that uses this just for 45 minutes of quiet time, um, to be with yourself and your thoughts and your thoughts only, um, as well as sweating, you know, the saying endorphins make you happy. <laughs> happy people just don't kill people. It's a quote from uh, Legally Blonde. <laughs> uh, she literally says that. She's yeah. like, endorphin. But working out makes you happy. Working out makes you have endorphins. Endorphins, yeah. Make, you just I don't kill, kill people. people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like it. Can't argue with so it. So that, that's my association <laughs> is that people use fitness and exercise and sweating and exerting themselves uh, for a greater purpose than six-pack abs or to lose weight. Yes, that is all good. And there are plenty of people that do it for health reasons as well. But guess what? Mental health is health. Yeah. So uh, it's that mind-body connection that I just – with myself and then seeing people at the gym. Um, it's right there in your face. It's possible to be searching for that six pack or have it and be mentally a mess. Like maybe you have it just because you need your outward appearance to be one way because your inward is another. Absolutely. So yeah, that's pretty cool. I really, that's, so I worked at a gym when I first got out of college and signing up memberships and all that stuff. And a lot of people come into the gym looking at those big bulky folks and the ones that are ripped with six pack abs, thinking that they're inadequate, that they don't belong there, that they shouldn't be there. 
and then they don't go anymore. And what I love about what you said is really like immediately for me changes or gives the opportunity to change the perspective of how people look at other people when they're at the gym rather than looking at just the people who are in shape, just the people who are fit and thinking, oh, I'm never going to be there. I give up hope. It's looking at people who are there doing it for whatever reason that they're doing it and you can do it too. And it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, going to compete with Arnold in 1970 or if you're going to go bench press 400 pounds, uh, all the thing that matters is you're there and everybody else is there for maybe the same reason or a different reason, but everybody's there and just enjoy the time and escape and, you know, do it, do it for the reasons that matter to you. I love that. Never have thought about it that way before. And I just, just love it right out the gate. That's awesome. Good. That's awesome. Well, it's a big, I mean, it's like a, it's like a mini version of life. Like, cause everybody's fighting their own battles. Like everybody's in a different place. And, you know, you look at that guy or gal, like on the other side is ripped up and looks amazing. And it's like, they're chasing somebody else. That's more, or they may be possibly chasing somebody else. That's got the physique that they actually want. And it's like, um, I, I was working with a trainer not long or a couple years ago here. And he's like, he's like, well, why, why do you want to look like that? He's like, why don't you want to look like what your body's supposed to look like? He's like, there's different body types. Like maybe you're not meant to look like that. Why aren't you okay with that? And it's like, huh, like, you know, and that kind of goes, permeates through a lot of things. So you said as a way to cope, which ties in to part of the reason we got connected because of your, your, some of your story from your background. So I'm very interested. I know you just told me before we turned on the recorders that you're from out here from Rancho Palos Verdes or Palos Verdes. It's Palos Verdes, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> There's different parts of Palos Verdes. They're all fabulous. But yes, Palos Verdes. So it's not the rancho. Yeah. Rancho's kind of up on top. I'm from um, down below, I guess. <laughs> it's a big hill on a peninsula uh, overlooking uh, basically all of Los Angeles. So, But so tell us a little bit about like, what was it like growing up out here? And, and I want to ask that to lead into your story a little bit and get in, get into that. So people who are not from California or not from LA out of towners, uh, they think Venice, Santa Monica, uh, Beverly Hills, West Hollywood, that's LA. And I guess it is. Um, that's what you see in the movies. That's where all the tourist attractions are. That's where a lot of famous actors, actresses, you know, sports professionals, that's, LA. Um, I grew up in Palos Verdes, which is a very small, quaint town, isolated from the hustle and bustle of Los Angeles. So to get to a freeway, it was 45 minutes. Yeah. Where here you jump on and, you know, you can get anywhere in 15, 20, um, give or take. Uh, so growing up in Palos Verdes, small little suburb, um, kind of reminds me of a, I don't want to say a country town, but you've got, one high school, two middle schools, a bunch of elementary schools. Everyone knows everyone's business. Um, upper middle class area, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Um, I am so blessed to have been raised and, you know, grown up in Palos Verdes. But, uh, so when people say like, Oh, you're from Los Angeles. How was that? Uh, you know, 
oh, I'm going to go to the Hollywood sign. I, it took me 26 years to finally go to the Hollywood sign. I was 26 when I finally went to the Hollywood sign. So I didn't grow up in that LA. I mean, there's no bars in Palos Verdes. There's no riffraff. So everyone always has this mentality when I say I'm from California, I'm from Southern Los Angeles. They think, oh, you know, maybe I'm stuck up or Valley Girl. Valley Girl, yeah. Like, no, I grew up, you know, away from a lot. I was sheltered a lot. It's a very, again, a very small country feeling, um, close knit uh, community. So growing up, I played sports, uh, again, away from the hustle and bustle. So I was very, uh, I want to say sheltered, but my parents, you know, would let me know about the real world events, but, uh, physically I was sheltered just because we were, you tend to, especially with the distance to the freeways, like you tend to stay in your neighborhood if you don't have to go somewhere else. So, yeah. And you said, um, you were sheltered because of the small community. How, how would you define sheltered? From what I was, or trying to convey. Yeah. Physically sheltered in the sense of, um, I remember the riots happening. Mm -hmm. I think I was in second grade Mm. and I remember hearing it on the news. And so with the events and emotionally, I wasn't sheltered, but sheltered in the sense of, no, that's never going to happen where we live, you know, honey. Coming Which, from mom and dad, like physically, we we are far enough away. Yeah. Like you're protected, you're safe, um, but not sheltered mentally or. It's, a, it's an interesting thing you call out there because that's an LA thing. Because LA is so big and people don't realize it. So I have people asking me about the fires, but that's in NorCal. I mean, there's the ones in OC, but people don't know OC in LA, or a lot of people don't know OC in LA. That's different. Southern California, and they think, oh, you live in Southern California, so that's right there. But right next to your house, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a lot of that big city experience too. Um, Chicago's yeah. a similar way. So I'm curious to to understand how you experienced that sheltered, like physical shelter. Like, how did you I, I break away from it mentally, or how did you experience it mentally? Because, and I use this example is Chicago. If you're if you live in the Chicago suburbs, and you generally don't go downtown. And you probably have more of a negative perspective of what it means to go downtown. So many murders, all of these things, which are generally concentrated in the city. I lived downtown for 10 years and I didn't go to those areas, but I never felt unsafe. And I would I would venture off and, you know, the right time of day just to experience the city a little bit more. But so I'm curious to. You know, from with that, that's kind of the root of my question, how you experienced that sheltered life. And did you, because a lot of people who are sheltered tend to be closed-minded or... Absolutely. Right? So, I'm curious to to understand. It, does that make sense? I'm kind Absolutely. Of, yeah, okay. No. Um, I'd have to accredit that to my dad. Um, so, growing up, uh, he, so he went to school at USC. USC <laughs> is in the hood. Yeah. And so he, and he actually grew up in Palos Verdes as well. I grew up in the house that he grew up in. Oh, wow. Uh, he always, always instilled, um, in my brother and I, uh, the, the value of a dollar, hard work. And I think that's because he went to school, um, you know, 
privilege at USC, but also got to see what LA really is. And he did not want his children, though growing up in Palos Verdes, being closed-minded um, because that's what he dealt with uh, himself growing up in PV and going to USC. Um, so I would say it started with my dad, um, you know, not having that, again, I never had to struggle growing up, but I didn't get a car when I was 16. Like every other friend of mine, you know, he made me understand like, no, you've got to work. Um, you're going to go to college. So not giving me everything I ever wanted. Um, and then uh, geographically, I did a lot of volunteering in high school at the Children's uh, Los Angeles Orthopedic Hospital right in Watts uh, by USC. So I was exposed. I wasn't physically sheltered. My parents um, brought me out of the bubble. And I also... Being stuck up in PV, I was bored. I wanted to go down to the beach. I mean, we had our own beach, but I wanted to go down to the beach. There was a whole life. I could see the whole city of LA and I was always wanting more. Um, and I think that's why I left uh, for college and I went to Tucson, another really not so great neighborhood close to the border, a lot of crime. Um, so thank you parents for not sheltering me and, you know, making me volunteer at hospitals and seeing that there's another life. There's other races. There's people who struggle. My dad worked in the restaurant business. So, um, you know, he saw all different walks of life. When I walked into his restaurants, um, you know, I, I learned how to speak Spanish. I knew everyone's name. He made me introduce myself to all the cooks, bus boys. I mean, there was no, so dad. Yeah. So I think taking, taking a pivot now, cause you've mentioned your dad a lot. And obviously that brings you to where you are today. Um, and I mean, he, he had a huge influence on, on you growing up. It sounds like, and do you mind sharing your story? Because I know it's important for you to share it um, in an effort to continue to promote the positive mental health and growth. Uh, so in 2007, uh, firstborn, oldest child, and I was, let's see here, 21, 2007, senior year of college at the University of Arizona. And my dad was so excited and so proud that his firstborn was graduating, um, more so graduating on time and not doing a fifth year financially. <laughs> I think was really why he was excited. It was like, yes, my girl did it. She was in the sorority. She didn't F up. She didn't fail out. And uh, she's graduating. I mean, I think any parent would be ecstatic that sure. My child is. I mean, it's a big accomplishment. Huge accomplishment. And I have struggle. Like, I, I'm very street smart, but when it comes to um, book smart, I I struggled my four years. I mean, so he never would want me to drive anytime there was a Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, spring break. Driving my car to and from Tucson to Palos Verdes was not an option by myself. So he would either accompany me, my mom would accompany me, or I would have a friend. He just, did not feel that it was safe for six hours for a 19 year old to be driving 
from state to state. So I always respected his decision. And just like any other year, any other spring break had done that drive a million times in those four years, quick vacations or uh, trips home. He, a little backstory, uh, a month prior to my spring break, I got a puppy, a little Yorkie named Marley. And uh, she ruined everything because I could not fly home. I couldn't get a dog babysitter for the week of spring break. So at that time, uh, Southwest, uh, having dogs on planes was just, it it wasn't the, it wasn't wasn't the fad. It wasn't wasn't a thing thing yet. yet. You know, you had to look at American or United. And at that point it was a $500 plane ticket to bring, you know, a puppy. And she was only a few weeks old. So, um, my dad said, okay, I'll come fly out. Um, you know, when you're done with your last, uh, final, I'll drive you home, spend the week and I'll do the same. We'll drive back on that Sunday. Um, and you can just take me straight to the airport. So like any other break, um, we, we did just that and we packed up my car. I got to drive from Tucson. I actually drove cause I picked my dad up from the airport Car was already packed, had my dog in the car, got to PV, spent a whole week with my family, spring break, senior year. Um, it was actually a, a really, it was a memorable spring break. My mom, dad were divorced at the time, but they were spending a lot of time together, which was kind of weird. And my brother was a, a senior in high school, so he was finishing up his senior year as well. I was finishing up my senior year as well. And all four of us, we were just a cohesive family unit. We always have been, but it was just a really special week. Um, March Madness was going on. So uh, the night before my dad and I drove home, we watched uh, the Stanford, I think it was the Stanford USC basketball game at Hennessy's in Redondo beach. We had a beer (laughs) and then we went and watched my brother's lacrosse game, watched my brother play lacrosse. And I noticed that my dad, we met my mom at the local high school and he put his hand on like her tailbone and like guided her down the stairs to come sit down um, on the bleachers. And I caught my dad doing that thinking, Hey, that's new. (laughs) <laughs> What's going on like, here? How long had they been divorced? Yeah. Uh, a good six, eight years. Oh. So fresh. So it wasn't new. No, no, it wasn't new. But it was just one of those moments where you're like, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Huh. I'm like, oh, well, that was very kind. I know what that like. symbol means. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. like, he was just so concerned that she was going to come sit, you know, wanted to guide her down on the bleachers. There's no backseats on the bleachers. Anyway, so that was the our last night together, watch my brother, uh, play lacrosse, woke up the next morning, me and dad get on the road and we drive from PV. Um, we do our normal stop in Blythe, fill up with gas. My dad had gotten coffee and, uh, just great conversation, both trips to and from, um, the week prior as well. And I kind of got all these questions answered that I've always wanted to ask my dad, um, his take on religion and faith, um, uh, a question about uh, a family, a certain family member. Um, so I'll just say it, his sister. He told me, never trust my sister. All these weird things 
uh, just came to light. Any question I ever really had, um, just this open and honest, real raw conversation in both drives. And, uh, I got, I got some really good insight and advice from him. And, uh, so he gets his coffee about another hour, two hours into the drive. We're right outside of Phoenix in a town called Buckeye. And I remember our last conversation, um, my mom had called. And again, at this time, I think it was maybe a flip phone (laughs) and I picked up and she's like, Brittany, can you ask your dad? She had, um, not Billy Joel, Rod Stewart tickets for her birthday. And I think my dad had gotten them for her, but she had Rod Stewart tickets and she wanted to know, which was again, another red flag, uh, if my dad was going to go with her because there were two tickets. And so she said, ask your dad. And my dad said, I'm not sure. Um, I'll have to get back to you. And she kept saying, okay, well, tell him I really want to go. And so I remembered saying, dad, she really wants to go. You, you and mom go to Rod Stewart's for her birthday. Click and the conversation. My roommate needed a ride from the airport. So all this was happening right before my accident. And, um, I guess I told my roommate, Hey, I'm going to be at the airport driving my dad, dropping him off. Um, if your plane gets arrives at the same time, you know, I'll give you a ride home. Click. And I'm pretty sure he was dozing off. Were you driving? I was driving. So he was in the passenger seat and I was driving and I had driven the whole way. And normally he always drives. He always drives. And for some reason he just was tired and he was like, ah, can you drive? And I said, and and I, of course, as a daughter, knowing that he's got to be at work wherever on Monday, um, of course I'm going to drive my dad. Uh, so on the 10 freeway, uh, getting into Buckeye in opposite directions that there are two lane highways and then a, a dirt ditch in between. And all I remember is going 80, 85, not too crowded, but I passed a big rig. So I was in the far left-hand side next to the dirt road. And I went to go past the big rig and then come back into the left-hand lane. And when I did that, a car in front of me, I don't remember what type of car. I just remember seeing that the car in front of me and the cars in front of that car were all slamming on their brakes suddenly. So I started to slam on my brakes. And uh, the only thought that came to my mind, and it is clear as day, I can see it in writing is, oh shit, this is going to be bad. Those exact words run through my brain. I can actually like physically see myself telling myself that like, Oh shit, this is going to be bad. And I slammed on my brakes. And as I slammed on my brakes to avoid hitting the car in front of me, I went off into the dirt medium, um, which kind of V's down, uh, like an inverted triangle. And we flipped about three times, uh, and immediately, um, landing on my dad's side each time. And on the last flip landed on the hood of the car. So we were upside down in the, um, yeah, so the car was upside down on its hood. Uh, my left side of my body was outside the window, and the railing on the driver's side door had pinned my body. So not only was I upside down, but I was trapped um, 
with my arm outside of the, the window. Under the car. Under the car. So as that's happening, again, I have, uh, don't forget about Marley. Marley is in my car. Uh, window shattered, almost a pancake. And Marley gets out, runs across to the opposite side of uh, the highway. And a man and a woman, Clay and Lauren, uh, husband and wife, see the last flip. And they just see a bunch of dust and debris in the air. And they, Lauren, the wife, sees Marley um, and obviously thinks, okay, this little cute Yorkie has got to come from the accident. Why would a Yorkie be trotting across the 10 freeway? And so she scoops up uh, Marley and goes back to her car. Her husband, Clay, and some other um, people and onlookers um, came to the car immediately. And they both thought, um, just by the looks with, with the blood um, and what the car looked like, that you know we were both... There was no movement. Um, uh, someone reached around and was able to check my dad's pulse, and um, he had he had died. So, in the coroner's report, it was blunt force trauma to the head, and so he died instantly. But they couldn't get to me um, to check my pulse, so they just assumed that both of us were um, had passed. And uh, Clay, kind of as he explained it. Uh, there were people, all, my stuff in my car was scattered all up and down the freeway and people were actually coming up to my luggage and stealing my luggage and trying to take the stuff that came, flew out of my car. I was in a Ford Explorer. So not, it's not like I had a U-Haul or a Suburban or a Tahoe where I had that much stuff. I just had a suitcase and, you know, school books, Marley's, you know, doggy stuff, um, so in the midst of him fighting people off, trying to, you know, gather my belongings, gather my dad's belongings, um, they heard at some point I came to and I couldn't breathe. The seatbelt was cutting off my um, air supply, basically. Uh, so the seatbelt was choking me and I guess I came to and I remember not being able to breathe and whether I, I don't remember saying it, but I just remember the feeling of not being able to breathe and fighting like, Oh my gosh, I'm trapped. Um, and I screamed and clay heard me scream saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Um, at that point, him and a few other people were able to lift the car off of my body. Um, so they rolled the car somehow got me out of the car um, the seatbelt was stuck. So someone had a knife, scissors, was able to cut the seatbelt off of me, get me out of the car. And that's when um, I was air vacced to uh, a local hospital in Phoenix. And um, that's the, the meat and potatoes of the accident or what, you know, or how my dad had passed. And, um, and uh, Marley survived. I survived. I lost eyesight from the head trauma in my left eye, um, which I've regained. But at the time, um, there was about a six-month period where, um, due to the head trauma, eyesight was gone. Um, it severed a nerve, or I shouldn't say severed. It bruised a nerve, which was able to repair itself. And so I was able to gain eyesight back. Um, the, my whole arm was black and blue. 
the only bone in my body that I broke was a pinky, my pinky, this little, little guy, nothing wow. else was broken. My clavicle, um, I've been taught, you know, I downplay my injuries a lot because I know what the, you know, what the end result could have been. So I do have a lot of injuries. I did have a lot of injuries. Um, but on the scheme of things, uh, nothing can, can compare to what that end result could have been for me. But thank you for sharing that. That's, um, that's intense. It's a very sobering uh, story that you comfortably tell. I'm sure it's taken you a long time to get to that point. You know what? It, it is, uh, it's almost like an outer body experience. I, I don't, and I hope I don't go off on a tangent on this. So. <laughs> no, you're good. You can we, reel we, me back in. We handle tangents well. I know. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, very traumatic. And sometimes I say it stoically, like without expression, because I am so removed from what actually happens at points throughout my life um, because I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. I do. And I don't. Uh, I was on morphine. I was heavily medicated for a week. And then I was put on anxiety medication because I was, I would have phantom pains. So let's just compare it to my brother and my mom. My brother and my mom who are in sound mind, healthy, get the news that they lose their father or, or husband, ex-husband, father. Um, that to me is so traumatizing to, to hear the words that your dad just passed away. Um, I don't know what that's like. I have no idea what that is like, what their experience is like. Um, it kills me to think about that pain and that agony versus they can't understand the pain and agony I feel. Um, one's not better, not one's not worse. Um, they're both, I think, equally awful. Uh, but I am sometimes removed from that pain just because one, I, I don't remember clear and concise events. It's told to me, you know, in second, third, um, hand stories. And so for a while there, it was, I didn't really deal with the grief that my mom and brother got or felt for the first year because I was putting the pieces together for so long and I still am. Um, when you say putting the pieces together, do you mean the pieces of the story, the physical pieces, the mental pieces, all of it, like all of it, because, uh, a week in the hospital. So once I got to the hospital, um, air vacked, um, boyfriend and best friend were the first ones to the hospital scene. My mom was actually at my grandfather's funeral, um, across country. So she's in West Virginia, uh, is told that dad has passed. Uh, they don't know where I am and she's in West Virginia. My brother is at home in PV with my grandma and a police officer comes to the house and tells, um, brother and my grandma, um, what had, how happened. old was your, your brother? How old would he have been at the time? Uh, 17 senior in high school. So putting the pieces together as in, well, how did you find out? Um, one, how did you find out? Uh, what were you doing when you found out? Uh, how did you get home? 
why were Mike and Courtney the first ones to my bedside? Um, again, heavily medicated, just trying to figure out what happened. Um, for a good 24 hours, I asked persistently the nurses when boyfriend and best friend came to my bedside, where is my dad? Where is my dad? No one felt that um, it was their position to tell me. Um, they wanted to wait until my mom was able to get to the hospital and have my mom tell me. But I was so persistent. And in my heart, I knew um, I just had this feeling. I just, I knew my dad had was gone, but I medicated, wanted to know. I wanted to hear those words. Do you think, so them not telling you, like nobody telling you, was that the right call or not? Or is it not a right or wrong thing in your mind? Like how, how do you look at that? Um, That is a really good question. I don't think there really is a right or wrong. I think um, them knowing how persistent I was and that I was not going to give it up and it was, my blood pressure was going up and I, I physically, you know, they're just feeding, I just feeding me drugs, feeding me drugs just to sedate me. Um, and I was continuously, finally, my mom, um, over the phone told me. Um, so I think in the end they made the right call, not waiting another 24 hours. So now it's 48 hours of Brittany. I think if they had continue to push off answering my question. Um, I, I, they knew that I was in distress. So um, in the end, they made the right call. Um, what was I, that moment like? You say you don't under, like you don't have that same understanding, like your brother hearing it or your mother hearing right. it. You were obviously sedated and drugged. Right. But for you, given the circumstances around it, what was that moment like for you? I remember, so again, when I woke up in the hospital, I was screaming that I couldn't see. I lost my eyesight. I lost, I kept telling everyone, I lost, I can't see. I had contacts in, so they took my contacts out. I'm like, nope, I still cannot, I can't see. I can't see you. I, um, everything was blurry. Every, everything was just shadows. And then again, I was, you know, nauseous with the head trauma. When they gave me the phone, I remember saying, or I remember hearing my mom say, honey, he didn't make it. And I dropped the phone and I just remember uh, crying. And again, I can't, I, I don't remember pictures. So when you ask like, well, what does it mean putting the pieces together? I try so hard to think back to that time. Like, what did I see? And I didn't see anything because I could not see. I physically could not see. Oh, yeah. So putting the pieces together for me is, yes, going back and trying to relive those moments and what it felt like. And it was just a, a, a sickening feeling but almost a relief like someone they find my mom finally told me like i just needed to hear that even though i knew in my heart you you didn't have confirmation so yeah. what point did you first process that your dad had passed in the accident hmm. can i ask a clarifying question what do you mean by process so your mom told you when you were on the phone yes um heavily sedated 
you leave the hospital, you've been on drugs for a month, painkillers, all of those things. You're going from doctor to doctor. You're working through physical therapy. All of these things in general have the tendency to distract the mind in some way. And especially with a, a traumatic event like that, during that time, had you pro- like really internalized it? I mean, nope. you, and at what point did you first internalize it and 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 really hit that point where it was like, okay, this is real? Um, it's like a five part answer, but <laughs> that's fair. Uh, it was like a ten part question, so. <laughs> 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 so, uh, and these are all, these are memories. So, uh, at my dad's funeral, even at my dad's funeral, not there. Uh, again, it, it felt like I was just in a walking dream and dad's funeral was a week, week and a half after the accident. Um, even there was a moment where my brother and I, everyone had left. We were at the cemetery um, and the only time in 11 years that my brother, you know, we'll say that we miss dad, but to really see him connect in that moment and tear up um, was everyone had left and it was us standing next to uh, his coffin at the cemetery and him say, I just can't believe he's gone. So I think that was in that first stage my brother saying that and my brother and I sharing that moment was okay. Yeah, he is gone still medicated. But, uh, I think that is a memory that sticks out where that was a first, Oh my gosh, this actually happened. Um, and then question real quick. Does it, when you think back on the funeral, does it bother you that you were medicated that you couldn't be there? Like fully present? Oh yeah. It frustrates me that for months, I wasn't there. Like I wasn't present. Um, yeah, it, fr- it frustrates me. Really frustrates me. Because I, as humans, we want to be in control, right? And so the complete opposite of that happened to me. I lost full control over everything. Um, full control over, in a sense, my life. You know, I couldn't drive. I couldn't work out. I couldn't do anything independently, really. I was just a shell of a human being told that I need to be at this doctor or, you know, we, dad's funerals tomorrow or, you know, so-and-so is coming over for, for dinner. Um, we got to get back to school, uh, which I ended up doing. So it frustrated the hell out of me. And I knew, and the whole time that I'm grieving, I, and I remember telling, when people ask me, like, how are you doing? Fine. Like, I was getting frustrated that I wasn't I wasn't sad like my mom and my brother. Again, our grieving process, completely different. Like, I didn't understand why they, my mom is sobbing and she can't get off the couch. Or my brother, you know, is dealing with it in a different way and drinking or, you know, being rambunctious senior year, you know, partying and, you know, and why are they dealing it with it, it in that way? Or why, why am I not crying? I would I would get frustrated that I wouldn't cry. Come to find out, I was in freaking shock. Um, and that was my body's way, mentally and physically, of just coping. I mean, I was in survival mode. 
So it took kind of the second moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, my dad is not here. Again, I've never really been in that moment of your dad's not here. I I feel like I was robbed of that. Not that anyone would ever want that, but I was robbed. So the second closest thing to, oh my gosh, your dad is gone was uh, when I graduated college. Um, knowing how proud he was of me graduating, uh, the after party and everyone's moms and dads there and me looking around and my dad was not there, but knowing how proud he was that I did it and probably effing super proud that I did it after what I had just been through. And I finished it with the highest GPA I had all four years and I passed my finals, you know, with one eye and in a cast and, (laughs) walking around University of Arizona, drugged out of my mind. I don't even know how I got to my classes or even had the mental capacity to study and memorize things, but super normal human strength. Like I had it and I did it. Um, So I remember the day of graduation, looking up in the sky and something, not something, the clouds uh, resembled an angel. And my mom was like, that's your dad. And at that moment, sitting around looking everyone's moms and dads there. That was, you know, kind of the second moment. Oh my gosh, my dad isn't here at a huge event. Um, and especially something that was so important to him. So that would be the second moment leading into Brittany getting drunk that night and having a complete meltdown and taking it out on boyfriends and kicking my boxes that were ready to be you hauled off the next day and going back home. Uh, that was where I think I finally got to get out that grief that typically looks like crying and sad and depression. For me, it was, um, I'm going to lay on my floor and kick, uh, U-Haul boxes and break whatever's inside. don't know what's inside, but so that was like the second kind of moment. Um, that aha, oh my gosh, my dad's not here. And then fast forward, possibly almost a year after, uh, I was at a girlfriend's wedding and that's the first time I started feeling anxiety. So I was, I don't want to say anxiety free, but, uh, where I thought I was literally going to die or something was going to pop out. Like a, like a real panic attack. Yeah. Like a real panic attack. Um, I was in a hotel and for some reason I started feeling that claustrophobic in a hotel room in downtown LA. Oh my gosh. I, am I going to pull my hair out? Am I going to jump out the window? I had this loss of control feeling. And I think subconsciously being at a wedding, not my wedding, but one of my best friends wedding, um, you know, seeing that her dad, walked her down the aisle. I think there were a lot of triggers that I, I wasn't putting together. Um, I think triggered the, your dad's not here anymore. So it, it always felt like, um, and it's still to this day, uh, a puzzle putting together pieces of a puzzle. When you say you never had that moment, like your mom, your brother, is that what you mean by it? Because it's, it's, you've kind of taken it piece by piece because, through these different moments and it it never really was this oh crap and then grieve type of thing yeah yeah okay i don't want to say normally but when someone dies it's 
so-and-so has died. Mm-hmm. Here's the information. <laughs> in my... You get hit with it all at once, typically, yeah, or, yeah. or maybe, but it, you get it. Mine was just this effed up puzzle piece that I've gotten a better grasp on now, but it's been this long journey of, like, I just want to grieve and go through it. And, you know, there are stages of grieving, uh, but that initial, your dad has died. It was this long, drawn out uh, manhunt search. <laughs> it's specifically on anxiety. Um, how does it, like you said, it was a like panic attack. Is that, does it always manifest in the same way for you or same ways? Or how does it, how, how does that, how did it or how does it uh, manifest for you? So going back to, so I didn't have any signs of anxiety um, or at least I didn't, I didn't know what it was until a year after my accident. Um, and one of the first times was at the wedding. It started off at that time, I'd say, you know, year after year one, year two, year three, first three, four years, um, this impending doom feeling that would just randomly come over me like a big black cloud. Um, Laugh if you will, people, but uh, like something out of the sky, aliens, terrorists, murderers. I didn't know what it was. This ominous was going to kill me. Not even kill me. Like something bad was just going to happen at any given time, moment. And this feeling of impending doom. That's all I can think of is impending doom. It's just going to happen at any moment. It builds and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. Um, again, I'm in a hotel room with my best friend at my best friend's wedding. Why, why at that moment was I having this feeling that I was unsafe and that I was going to die? So that's what it started to look like. So very traumatic anxiety where um, nothing you could say or do would calm me down. This force was going to end me. So it uh, wouldn't calm you down. So how were you acting? Were you like, what was the, the outward? What were you the like? external manifestation. Yeah. Thank you. Um, very jittery. To the point where pacing, walking around, not knowing. And during all this, there are moments where trying to explain, because my girlfriend at the time was saying, you know, what, what can I do? Like, uh, how can I help? Or, you know, you're okay. And saying the words of, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen to me. <laughs> it sounded crazy. So I knew that my thoughts I knew that something was wrong, that this is not normal. Brittany doesn't normally feel like aliens. Aliens don't exist. These things that I'm thinking are irrational, but anxiety makes them feel rational. So you recognized that the thought you were having was irrational and that you couldn't stop having it, which probably perpetuated you feeling worse about having the feelings. So I would have anxiety about having anxiety. Yeah. Because I knew. I just had an idea. Remember we had a question about how to explain mental health yes. to somebody or lack thereof. Uh, 
the only time I've ever heard anything explained well was actually about anxiety. Um, a woman whose name I don't remember, I will find and I will share this. She's talking about anxiety. She's like, all right, panic attack. She's like, you know that moment where you're driving in your car and you think that you're, you might have left like your oven on or your, or your toaster or something that could burn down your house? Like that feeling? She's like, all right, now take that and it happens randomly. Like while you're in a board meeting and you just have that feeling for no reason. Mm-hmm. It, like, but but multiply it. Like multiply the, the feeling that you get that in your stomach or whatever um, multiply that feeling by many, many times. And like, that's a panic attack. Cause you're like, wait, I didn't, I'm not even at home. I'm in, I'm in Florida right now. I don't live like, there's no reason I should have that feeling. Cause I didn't use the oven today or whatnot. Um, that was like the only time I've ever heard somebody explain a feeling of a mental illness. Where I was like, Oh, well, I could understand how that would be very disturbing. Yeah. Uh, if I was feeling that or thinking that I like that, I'm going to steal it. <laughs> Take it. I, well, I, uh, she does it way better. Okay. So, I'm, I'm actually give you the video where she explains it. And then you can uh, take that. Take hers. Not mine. Yeah. But, yeah. So, the, during this phase, right? You had your first anxiety attack. You're starting to piece together that your dad is gone. Given the circumstances behind it, what type of... Did you feel guilt so, yes and no, and yes and no again. Okay. Uh, oh, I, I did. <laughs> or even share. shame, guilt, or shame. Yeah. All of it. And I still do to this day. So, at the time, in my heart, I don't feel guilty. Like, at the, at the core of Brittany, I don't feel guilty because the saying, and it, an accident is just an accident. It's an accident. I did not purposefully, um, want to harm anyone or harm my dad or the end result. Like it was accidents happen. Yeah. So you did roll the car three times on purpose. Yeah. yeah. So at the core of it, I know that it was not my fault. Um, it's not my fault. Guilt, uh, guilt's a mother effer. It, it, it manifests in, in different ways. So even though I feel that, I feel guilty when I see my mom and my brother struggle. Uh, It's again, connect the dots. So I see my mom and my brother struggle and I get frustrated with them. Like, why are they struggling, you know, so hard? And, you know, why are they so sad or why can't they do this? And then I'm like, oh, a lot of it is because they're depressed. Why are they depressed? Oh, they're depressed because they're still grieving the loss of my father. That sucks. They're you know, grieving the loss of my father. Oh, I was in an accident with my father that essentially, you know, I'm the one that was driving the car. So rationally, like if you go down the line, like it leads to me. Um, so at, in those points, I do feel like if this hadn't happened, then maybe my mom and my brother, um, you know, would be in a different mental state or a different state in their life. So I feel guilt in that sense. Is it less guilt and more blame? Like, are you blaming yourself because you were the one driving and not, like, you know, you're not guilty, but maybe you blame so, yourself. Yeah, so maybe yes. blaming mm. would be, yeah, mm. a, a better word to describe that. Like, like, how did you get, get to a place where you were able to not blame yourself? So backing up before that specific incident. So backing up when I started the hotel room incident at the wedding and I started feeling this anxiety, um, uh, my mom actually had given me, cause I, I started to feel it a little bit before that hotel incident mm. anxiety. And, um, 
the year prior to that, leading up to this hotel incident, uh, I was on, um, not Klonopin, basically a anti-anxiety drug. So I, Ativan, Ativan, I was just, I was just taking, didn't even know what it was. I was just taking. So of course that is just making me zoned out. I wasn't feeling anything come off of it feel fine. And then I start feeling kind of anxious. This hotel incident happened. And I remember my mom giving me um, some Xanax saying, you know, if you feel this way, take a Xanax, just make sure you're not drinking. So that incident, and I hadn't been drinking at that, uh, at the wedding, I took a Xanax. I'm like, oh my God. And I, I'm someone who was against medication. I don't want to take medication. I don't want to see a therapist. I, for a whole year, I hadn't seen, I didn't talk to anyone. I was just on cruise control, autopilot. Anxiety started happening. Mom gives me a Xanax in case I have a panic attack. And she maybe had that motherly internal instinct, like maybe being at a wedding is going to set her off. Sure enough, I have an anxiety attack. I waited maybe four or five hours. I'm crying on the phone with her. And she's like, Brittany, just take a Xanax. And I remember taking it and not that it, it, it put a bandaid on it, but I was actually able to pull, pull myself together and get my shit together and not have that fight or flight feeling anymore. I was able just to calm down and actually think after that incident, that is when, um, I said, mom, I need to go talk to someone because this is not normal. And, um, I don't want to ever feel that way again. Now I didn't go straight to the doctor. Um, it, it took me a, you know, a few months again. I didn't, I don't want to talk to anyone. Um, I started being snappy and, uh, abrasive and not my happy go lucky self and short shortness. Um, I was just, I kind of looked and felt like a miserable person, but I wasn't. So that's how it. So real quick, so you said to your mom, "I I I need to go talk to someone," but you didn't because you still didn't want to. Am I am following that correctly? Yeah, I still just didn't want to. Yeah, why not? I, um, Do you know? Like, I mean, it's that's a long time ago, but I'm curious. It was more about I don't want to be medicated. I didn't know too much about mental health. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be medicated. I don't want to, I don't, the psychiatrist is just going to put me on drugs. They're just going to put me on drugs and they just want me to be medicated. And I had felt so medicated that whole year prior and not grieving that that was the last thing I wanted to be put on. I want to feel, but then at the same time, it was a double-edged sword because I couldn't stand feeling this awful, awful death feeling. So there finally came to a point where um, I went to just my regular uh, physician and she prescribed me Zoloft. I remember taking Zoloft and waking up the second night. Um, I've never done LSD, but this is what I would think LSD would be. Uh, pixelated. I woke up in the middle of the night and my anxiety, I had an anxiety attack and what I was seeing out of my eyes was pixelated, just a groovy psychedelic movie screen. And I thought, this is why I didn't want to be put on medication. <laughs> I told my mom, I told the doctor, this is why. So then of course they change it, you know, okay, let's, let's do something else. Well, then they put me on Wellbutrin and I would be sitting there and I remember getting my nails done with my mom and I could not stop 
like shaking. I'm like, why am I, why am I shaking? I had diarrhea. I'm like, I can't get my nails done. I can't eat. <laughs> I got to be on the bathroom. Like I didn't have this positive experience that everyone was talking about. Like, oh, it's a life changer. It'll help you get through. It's just, it's not a forever thing. It's just to help you. It's it's to help you manage. And finally, I found a medic. I finally went to a psychiatrist who specializes in medication. Um, and I was put on Lexapro, and I finally felt that relief that. Um, I was looking for. It's a great um, representation as to, you know, a lot of people who don't have mental health challenges think, oh, just take your medication, you'll be fine. And a lot of people come off. Yeah, a lot of people come off medication, a lot of people for these very reasons. And I mean, great represent, yeah, great example as to some of those reasons why you know, if, if someone's listening, wondering why someone doesn't want to take their medication, there there are real reasons why people don't want to take their medication. Those those side effects are real. So you finally saw a psychiatrist. Finally saw a psychiatrist. Got on the got proper therapy. Yeah, it's therapy that, um, you know, it, it's a team of people that it's not just medication and it's not just therapy. Or at least in my case, it was, um therapy and medication. And I, I started to see a therapist. Um, and, uh, we found, you know, it was a journey of going to her every day, having to open up that wound and talk about what the anxiety looked like. I mean, to describe or to tell someone that, you know, I think aliens are coming after me. I thought I was never going to be cured because <laughs> like, I know that's not a real thought or that's not really going to happen. Um, and so she worked uh, with me through uh, just me explaining my day-to-day events and what could possibly be triggers. Um, a good example was finally when I felt comfortable driving a car. Um, How long did that take? A good six months. A good six After months. therapy? No. So, after, after the accident, accident itself. Okay. So, you started driving kind of th- and you were in therapy. Um, oh, okay. So, yeah. I really want to talk about the, the, the Brittany where everyone else started noticing, okay, she needs to go see help. Um, slash, started driving um, my day-to-day. I wasn't working. Uh, I decided I wanted to become a school teacher, um, cause it was a passion of mine. And, um, so at the time I was studying for, um, all the tests that I needed to take to get back into grad school and some of the tests I needed to take to become a substitute teacher, which I needed to take to get into the credential program. So I had a lot of time on my hands. And with that time, um, I would just drive around you would think that would be the opposite of what I wanted to do, but I would drive around trying to fill my day up with things to do because um, I needed to have a plan. Being idle, um, that would keep me in my thoughts. So I would set out a plan from, let's just say, 8 in the morning till 5 at night, and I would set out a schedule, um, exactly what I was going to do, 8 to 8.20, shower, 8.20 to 8.40, eat breakfast. 8.40, go get gas to 8.50. 8.50, uh, go to the gym till 9.20 and so forth until 
the end of my day. And that was my way of controlling so that nothing bad would happen. Um, that was my coping mechanism that helped my anxiety of, if I stick to this plan, I know that I'm taking this route to this location. I don't need to get on a freeway. If mom would call to be like, Hey, Brittany, can you, I remember one instance, and this is when I, another defining moment of, I need to go get help. Brittany, can you pick up milk um, from Vaughn's? Nope. Click. It's not on the list. list. It's not what you're, yeah. I'm curious for anxiety. And so I'm kind of curious on a couple of things, like specifically with anxiety, do you still, do you still experience anxiety attacks now or are you still, do you still deal deal with anxiety now? Yes. Uh, I'll get to that, but just something that kind of bridges once my therapist, again, my therapist became my saving grace, my, my best friend. Like I actually looked forward going to her because I got relief. If it's almost like, like, Hey, like if you work the program or if you have someone who is knowledgeable in anxiety and that's their forte and they're giving you the tools and you actually listen to them and you try and you humble yourself and know that I'm not the end all be all like, there's research out there, scientific based research, you know, that helps with this. And one of the things that she gave me that just gives me the sense of relief is Brittany, anxiety will not kill you. Those words right there, Brittany, you are not going to die from a panic attack. Sure. You can have high blood pressure. Sure. You know, like maybe a stroke, but like just knowing that I'm not going to die from having these irrational thoughts gave me a sense of ease. And I, 10 years ago, her saying that is something that I take with me today. And I keep telling myself, okay, if when I do feel panic, I know that maybe two, three hours I'm feeling this way, but it's not going to last 24 hours because your body can't handle that stress. You're either going to pass out, um, make yourself physically ill um, so I know that there is going to be a t- uh, there's going to be an end site. There's going to be that light. So it took about two to three years to start heading to healing. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Heading to healing, and then years five, six, and seven um, continued on the path. So there will be points where I was on my Lexapro. Um, I'd say the first. Uh, anniversary year one to year four, I consistently took the Lexapro and the Klonopin. Um, and I always had my Klonopin as a, if I ever have, just knowing I have a bottle, if I ever have an anxiety attack on an airplane or in the middle of nowhere, and I can't get myself out of it on my own, I've got that, hmm. you know, that resource. Does knowing that help you actually get out of it on your own? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yes and no. Okay. More of a comfort feeling like I know if I'm going on four hours and I'm, let's say it's, if if I had to be up tomorrow, well, I do have to be up tomorrow. If I have to be up tomorrow to teach a class and for some reason something happens tonight where I have a panic attack and I'm like, I got to calm myself down and I can't knowing that um, as my last resort. Yeah. Is that a real life current day example? Like could that, it, could you get to that state now still? I don't know. It's to be honest, it's been a year or two since I've had, and maybe even longer, that impending doom, death, 
alien extraterrestrial force is going to come after me and hurt me. It has been a very long time since I felt that. Um, when did health and fitness come into the equation for managing this for you? So it started, I would say, right around the time that I was uh, seeing a psychiatrist, a therapist. I noticed me being someone who loves the beach, surfing, um, dan- dancing, as I, we talked about before, was a passion of mine. Um, I looked like a string bean. Hmm. I had no meat on my on my body. I um, doing normal activities. I just did not feel confident in how I looked. And I remember uh, hiring a personal trainer, and that personal trainer is the one who, uh, yeah, you know, got me back into shape. And I, so I'd say around. Year two, year three, I noticed, oh my gosh, working out is really helping with anxiety and, and it's giving me more so a purpose to show up. I enjoyed my trainer. My trainer ended up becoming a friend of mine, um, became a therapist that was in my own age group <laughs> um, and a, a friend. So I'd say about year two, year three, right around the time where I was going in on all ends, just trying to find some type of relief. And uh, I would have to say that having my trainer, my first trainer ever, uh, just being sympathetic and empathetic and um, having her own struggles and talking to me about her own um, trauma. Like, wow. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to go work out and get fit. It was that emotional connection, that emotional and physical um, connection that we shared. And that just kind of continued on years four, five, and six. And there were times where I would get really blue and maybe not work out for six months. But I knew at the end of it um, that working out and having that balanced lifestyle um, is where I'm happiest, healthiest, mentally and physically. Um, I became a trainer knowing that this woman had such an impact on me during a time where I needed someone the most at my age, um, a like person. And so, um, yeah. two, two last questions to kind of bring this to a close. Um, okay. and so one, so back going back a little bit to something you said when you had that panic attack, Mm-hmm. You had your friend with you, your best friend, and mm-hmm. she asked you how you can help. It's something that's so hard for a lot of people when they're on the outside. How can I help? What's the answer to that question? And and obviously coming from your perspective, but it matters, right? Like how how can how can someone help when you're in that state? What what's your thought on that? Right. Um at that moment, uh and hats off to her. Her name's Jill. <laughs> uh, she, you know, of course, just asking, what can I do? Mm. And essentially for me, there's nothing anybody could have done in that moment except give me a tranquilizer. Um, so having someone ask what they could do, you know, do you want water? Do you want tea? Um, if I did need those things, I can't remember if, she, if I did need water or tea. Um you know, do you want to go home? Just being uh, accepted 
and not being judged. Um, I think things would have been a lot worse if I was with a stranger or someone not as close and they just told me, get over it. Um, get over it. You're fine. Let's go. Or they wanted to force me to go down to the bar and go back to the wedding reception party. Um, so just to be a good listener, um, not to judge, you know, when someone's judging you, you know, when they give you the roll of the eyes, like snap out of it. Um, those simple words of snap out of it, or you'll be fine or just get over or take, you know, in a sarcastic way, just take deep breaths. You'll be fine. Uh, especially if it's a friend is just to be there with them. Um, I, now, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone out there who's struggling with anything that they're having a hard time managing, similar to what you did, whether it's anxiety, depression, um, PTSD, what, what, would that, what, what would that core life hack be in that respect? What would that core piece of advice be? Oh. It could be a novel. <laughs> it could be. Gonna, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's not one solid answer, but this is what I would say, and I think this is just my overall message: is that um, uh, life is too good to not be in it. And I know that's such a vague, like, no, it's good. Eh, yeah, no. life is great, but it is. It's so good, and I, it. It, it really is. There's some shitty parts and some sucky parts, but, uh, if, if you feel like you don't want to be here anymore, you got to reach out to someone, uh, bottom line, friend, stranger, someone, let someone know. Um, yeah. 